0: I've got a question for you this morning. And here's the question. Do you know the meaning of your own name? I mean, your first name. In a room this size, about half the people would know what their first name means. That's not really that important. Here's the follow-up question. Much more important. Do you know the meaning of, let's say, the ten most important people in your life? Spouse, children, parents, best friend... Could you give me the meaning of their first name? Usually no one can do that. Some people can do one or two names and that's about it. You see, in our culture, that's not really important, is it? In fact, the only time I was trying to think last week that we care about looking at the meaning of somebody's first name is when we have a baby. Am I right here? So usually then even you pick the name based on, hey, it sounds good, I like this name, or it honors a relative, a grandparent, or an aunt, or an uncle, or a sibling. And then you go online and you Google it because you say, I don't want to finalize this, and it means something really bad, right? In fact, there are people in Albuquerque right now with names that actually mean things like full of hatred, or stinky hair, (laughs) or fungus, or intoxicating. Although with that last one, maybe some of you would say, hey, I'd kind of like a name that means I'm intoxicating. But I wouldn't like that kind of name. So, here's the big thing. In the ancient world, everyone knew the meaning of your name. Or to word it differently, in the world of the Bible, everyone knew the meaning of everyone else's name. So let me give you an example of how that works. Let's take the book of Ruth. Obviously, main character Ruth has a name. Her name has a meaning. Her name actually means friendship or companion. So what I'm saying is every Israelite that heard that story would think of that right away when they heard the name Ruth. So let's try to recreate how that might feel if you're an Israelite listening to that story. Here's one verse from Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. Here's how we see it in our Bibles. But Ruth said, let me take a little pause here. She's talking to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Many of you know know the story. They're outside of the land of Israel. Their husbands have died. Naomi's going back. Her daughter-in-law is going to say, I'll go with you. So Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people your God, my God. That's how it is in our Bibles, right? Let's do a little experiment. Let's take out the name Ruth and let's put in a substitute, which is what her name means. And let's see how that sounds. Same verse, Ruth 1.16. But companion said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. That's how an Israelite would have heard the story of Ruth, Anytime her name would come up. In fact, if you've read a great, great book, written in the late 1600s, called The Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress is by John Bunyan, this book is filled with names like that, like the word companion. It focuses on a guy named Christian, And it follows his journey to get rid of sin, to receive salvation, and then on to the heavenly city. And along the way, he has friends that help him. He actually needs to have friends that help him. He can't do do the journey alone. He has other people that come across his path that try to hinder him from reaching salvation or the heavenly city. And he has some people that try to harm him and even kill him. Let me show you just one or two of these people that come across his path. Uh, One guy he meets is called Mr. Worldly Wise Man. That's his name, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Mr. Worldly Wise Man says this, among other things, to Christian. He says, you don't need to worry about this, this thing called sin. Sin doesn't exist. So don't even bother your mind about that anymore. And by the way, why don't you come with me To yonder city of morality and stay with me and leave your journey. So, oddly enough, the city of morality ends up not being all that moral. Here's another character Christian runs across. His name is called Giant Despair, a giant named Despair. The giant Despair captures Christian and his traveling companion and imprisons them in Doubting Castle. Now, this is all fiction, right? Or is it? I mean, I'm guessing in a room this size, there is more than one person here that if you would stand up and be honest, you would say, I have been captured by giant despair and I want to be freed from this castle that I am imprisoned within. So, with that background, let's turn now to God's proper name. What have we learned so far? Everyone knows the name of everybody else in the Bible days. God's proper name is the name Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now, to start with, this name has about a dozen variations. So let me show you some of these variations. Let me go through just a few reasons why we've got these. We're not going to go through all of them or we would be here for five hours. One reason is that there is a shortened name for God, Yah, Y-A-H. Not a nickname, not a slang name, a shortened name of His proper name. In fact, we sing this shortened name when we sing the word hallelujah. We're singing two Hebrew words, hallelujah, which means praise, and God's shortened name, Yah, Y-A-H, so praise Yahweh. You'll also see Yah on the end of some of the names of kings and prophets. Hezekiah has a -A Y-A-H, probably looks like an I-A-H, on the end of his name that means Yahweh's shortened name is a part of his proper name his first name or prophet Isaiah I-A-H instead of Y-A-H same thing so one reason for variations a shortened name here's another reason in English we sometimes see a J instead of a Y so you may have seen Jehovah instead of Yahweh where did that J end up coming from well got to give you a little linguistics here or language work. I think you'll know that in Europe, centuries before there ever was a United States of America, there were scholars translating and studying the Bible. One of the centers for scholarship was Germany. Well, in German, the letter J has a Y sound. Quick example, the German word for yes is ja. Sounds like Y-A, right? It's not spelled Y-A, it's spelled J-A. So, If you got this in German, the letter J is pronounced Y. That came over into our English, and people didn't change it in most cases, in some cases, to a Y, although they should have. So big point here, there's no J sound in German, and there's no J sound in Hebrew. So this is why for this series in late summer through the month of August, we're going with Yahweh, not Jehovah. Now there are other reasons, too, why we're going with Yahweh, not Jehovah, but that's one of them. There's no J sound in Hebrew. Better to say Yahweh is God's proper name. Finally, uh, number three. In addition to these variations, there are substitutions. So here's how that works. If Yahweh is God's proper name and it was pronounced that way, then why don't we ever see the word Yahweh in our Old Testament? By the way, it occurs over 6,000 times that you could search and search and maybe find it once or twice. Why does that happen? Because we've got a substitute word that's come in, and I'll explain why in a minute. That substitute word is the word Lord, and it's spelled a special way to let you know that this is God's proper name, Yahweh. Here's how it's spelled. It's not all lowercase. It is not all uppercase or capital letters, nor is it capital letter for the first letter and the rest are lowercase, like my name would be Ronald capital R, the rest lowercase. Instead, translators use something called small caps. And if you've experimented with the font part of your word processor, you'll probably know what this means. This means the L is its usual big size, capital letter. The ORD are also uppercase or capital letters, but they're a little bit smaller, hence the name small caps. Really odd spelling if you look for it. When you see that, you've got Yahweh. So maybe final question, why did this happen? I mean, why don't we just have Yahweh? After all, translators do that with every other part of the Bible, like Ruth, that's the way her name sounds in Hebrew. They use R-U-T-H. Why didn't they do that with Yahweh? Well, here's the reason. In the Old Testament, people did pronounce God's name. They would say Yahweh, and always out of praise or reverence, or it should be always out of praise or reverence, never lightly. But, before the days of Jesus, and this was a growing thing in his day, Jewish religious leaders had a different idea. Their idea was, we're not going to pronounce God's name at all. We're going to come up with a substitute word. Now, why would they do that? Well, their rationale went along these lines. The third commandment of the Ten Commandments says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So the religious leaders thought, hey, we got this one covered. If we never say God's name, we'll never take it in vain. We'll never use it lightly. So maybe a little bit odd to our ears, it's kind of like saying, okay, I'm not supposed to lie, but hey, I can solve it. If I never talk to my neighbor or my wife, if I never talk to anybody, then I'll never lie. So I'll just clam up whenever I'm with somebody. That wouldn't make much sense, would it? But that's what they came up with. And this tradition was so strong that it influenced Christian translators in the first few centuries and still to this day. So for your point of view and for application's sake, when you see Lord, small caps, you've got to think proper name, Yahweh. So, Yahweh really doesn't mean Lord. We'll talk about what it means in a few minutes. It is a substitute word. So let me summarize our little intro to Yahweh here. Yahweh is a proper name. Have you got that? Can you nod your heads? I got it. Yahweh is a proper name, like Jesus, or like Ronald. Adonai, the Hebrew name for Lord, is not a proper name. It's a title, Lord. Now, let's do a New Testament counterpart. Jesus is a proper name, like Yahweh, like Ronald. Christ is not a proper name. It's not Jesus' last name. It's a title, and it means anointed one. So, Yahweh, Old Testament, Jesus, New Testament. There are substitute words and variations. We've talked about a few reasons. And finally, why do we not come across Yahweh in the Bible? Because of a Jewish custom that is very strong in translation, that we try not to pronounce Yahweh's name. So, now we're ready for some Bibles. So open up your Bibles if you've got one to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. Now, as you're getting there, Exodus chapter 3, I want you to watch and listen for Moses' two questions. His first question is going to be, who am I? It's a little bit longer than that, but that's the core of the question. God, who am I? And then Moses' second question is to God, and his second question is, God, who are you? As we'll talk about later, these are not really questions about names. Moses already knows God's name. They're questions about significance and identity and authority and theology and explanation and application. Again, I'll get back into that. They're not just about information. I don't know your name. What is it? Moses already knows God's name. So, Moses' question, who am I? Reading, starting at verse 9. And now, behold, this is God speaking, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the ch- children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So here we've got Moses questioning his own identity and authority. Now, think about this for a minute. We might imagine God saying something like this in our time and day. We might imagine God saying something like, oh, Moses, hey, You're a good man, and you've got the potential to be great. Just, man, reach down in there and try harder. Or maybe we could imagine God saying, if you believe it, he will see it. Believe in yourself, man, you'll see great things happen. Or you can do it. God doesn't say any of those things, does he? Have you looked ahead to what God says? Let's read it, verse 12. He, God said, but I will be with you. That is God's answer to Moses' question about himself, about Moses. All right, time for a little sidebar on Hebrew grammar. So I know you probably weren't thinking you'd do grammar on Sunday morning. Probably have bad memories from high school English grammar classes, but it'll get us to a good place, so bear with me. In English, you'll know we have three tenses, right? Past, present, future. We all use those every day. We know how to form those. Past, present, future. Hebrew has a tense called the imperfect. So what does that mean? Imperfect means not perfected. Not perfected means not completed. So it's action that is not completed. (sighs) Okay, Ron, I'm still lost. What does that mean? All right. Let's use English. Present tense, I am baking bread. Is that completed action? No, I'm in the middle of doing it. It's not done yet. So English present tense is incomplete action. How about English future tense? I will bake bread tomorrow. Is that completed? No, it's not even started yet, right? Hebrew combines those two, our English present and future, into one tense called the imperfect, meaning not completed yet. So, I know you're still a little bit lost, so let me show you how it works. Just look at the screens. I'm going to show you a verse from Psalm 139. I'm going to show it to you in two different translations. So, Psalm 139, verse 14, the English Standard Version on the left says this, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is present tense. I praise you now. Look at the right-hand column. New King James as well as Old King James and New American Standard have this as future. They insert the word will. So, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So, one is present, one is future. Which is right. Is it present or is it future? Well, I'll tell you the answer. Yes. They're both right. Because we could call this The present-future tense. And we could translate it this way. This is kind of what an Amplified Bible does. It lengthens things out. We could translate it this way. I am praising you now and I will praise you tomorrow as well as next week and next month. Now that's way too long for a real translation because Hebrew doesn't have that many words. But that's the sense. That's the meaning. I praise you now And I'm praising you in the future. Now, let's go back to our verse, Exodus 3, verse 12. God says, I will be with you. This can really be translated either, I will be with you or I am with you. Why? It's the Hebrew imperfect tense. It's the present dash future. Both are correct. So Moses says, who am I? God says, I will be with you or I am with you. Here's the point, the end of all of that stuff. This same verb, I will be or I am, that God says to Moses in this verse, verse 12, is the same verb spelled exactly the same way in Hebrew that God uses of himself. Two more verses, verse 14. When God gives Moses his own name, I am. So God says, it can be taken either way, I will be with you or I am with you. Remember those two words. I am. So we'll hear him a dozen more times in the next few minutes. Here's one take on this verse, verse 12, and we'll get to verse 14 in a minute. God's presence and his name casts out fear. It's a key theme in the Bible. It occurs in 20 to 30 different verses or passages, often worded like this. God says, I am with you. Do not be afraid. Let me give you just a few examples. Again, I could read 30 passages that have that. I'll give you just a few. Deuteronomy 31. We'll just look at that on the center screen if you want to, or just listen, starting at verse 8. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord... Yahweh, who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That gets repeated in Joshua 1, if you've ever read the first chapter of the book of Joshua. It gets repeated by King David. It gets repeated by King Hezekiah. Here's another passage. I know this is a favorite for several of you in church here. Isaiah chapter 41, verses 10 and 13. God says, fear not, for I am... With you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. Anytime an Israelite hears I am from God's own mouth, you going to think back to Exodus chapter 3. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, for I the Lord, there's Yahweh, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Let's flip to New Testament because we'll see it there too. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Finally, let me give you two more verses. They're great verses. You know them. The ones, there'll be verses that you recognize. And they've got this theme God's presence casts out fear. Psalm 23, verse 4 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Finally, Matthew chapter 28, great chapter. Three times in Matthew 28. We have Jesus saying, don't fear or be afraid. The third time he's saying that to his disciples, don't be afraid. How does Matthew 28 end? Last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. How does that chapter end? A lot of you know, with the thing called the great mission or the great commission of the church. Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes up into heaven. Now, some of us have heard that a hundred times. Sometimes it kind of goes in one ear out the other. So let me give you a little paraphrase or a summary of that mission given to the church to highlight a few items in it. Here we go. All authority has been given to me. You are to baptize people in a name. Here's how it ends. So last sentence of the last thing Jesus says to his disciples starts with our two words. I am with you always. When the disciples heard that, guess what they think back to? Exodus chapter 3. All of that starts with Exodus chapter 3. Let's go back to verse 12. God says, I will be with you. So to summarize this, Moses says, Who am I? God says, Hey, it's not about your skills, it's about my presence, my authority. That's what matters. The next question Moses asks is basically to God, Who are you? So let's read on. Exodus, uh, same chapter, verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Same verb, spelled the same way in Hebrew, verse 14, as it was in verse 12. So Moses says, who are you? God says, I am. So we've got to talk about this I am for a few minutes. Moses is the first prophet in the whole Bible, meaning he's the first guy God sends as a messenger with a message to either his people or some other people. First prophet. In fact, in this chapter, we'll read words like send, are nouns like word. They come up repeatedly. And what Moses is really asking for is not God's name. He knows that. He's asking for some significance because the people are going to say, were you really with Yahweh? Give us some evidence of that. See, they knew the name Yahweh long before the book of Exodus. We we come across Yahweh repeatedly in Genesis. In fact, in a few minutes, we'll see that Abraham names a place Yahweh Yireh. Or if you like the J's, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. So they knew his name in Genesis. God's gonna give something to Moses that's a little bit more, and it's this I am. So think of it this way. You guys know what security questions are for accessing online bank accounts, right? So usually they ask, maybe always, they ask for information, for facts. So let's say you're trying to get into your bank account, And the system randomly pops up a question, and the question is, what is the middle name of your father? That's not what's happening in Exodus 3. Moses is not saying, God, what's your name? I don't know it. Think of a security question this way, and these questions really don't appear, but what if they did? So instead of what is your father's middle name, the question goes like this. What is the meaning of your father's middle name? Or, why did your father's parents give him that middle name? What was going through their minds when that happened? That'd be a little bit harder, wouldn't it? That's what's happening here in Exodus, when Moses is saying, what is your name? He asks about a name, God responds with a theology and an explanation of his name. So, a couple notes to wrap this up, and we're on to Genesis. I am, two words in English, only one word in Hebrew. It's from the same verb that Yahweh's name is from. So now we can get to what Yahweh's name really means. I said it doesn't mean Lord. Yahweh means he is, or the one who is. So Yahweh means he is. God is doing a little variation on his own name by saying, you can also call me I am. Go to the Israelites and say, I am is also my name. So what might that mean, that God says, you can call me by the name I am? Well, it probably means one of three things, and we can see each of these three sometimes accented in various contexts in the Old Testament. One, it might mean the God who is versus the Canaanite gods who are not. So when God says I am, what's the implication? Other gods are not. So it teaches monotheism. One true living Real, God, that's it. Another thing it could teach is God's eternality. Remember the Hebrew imperfect, is and will be? Well, many people think, and in some contexts, it seems like God is saying this too, that God's name means the God who was, who is, and who will be. He goes through time, he's faithful. His authority, his power, his knowledge don't ebb and flow, they don't diminish. His authority doesn't depend on time. It doesn't depend on geography. It doesn't depend on area of life. He's not more powerful in work than home life, for instance, or vice versa. When God says, I am, he means was, is, will be. And then there's a third option, and I think this is what's happening in Exodus 3. When God says, I am, to Moses, he wants Moses to let the Israelites know, I am with you. I'm the God who's real and present because the, Egypt, the Israelites are going through crisis, right? They're probably saying, where is God in the midst of all this suffering? Here's what one commentator, Victor Hamilton, said about I am in Exodus 3. Hamilton says this, I would suggest that the dominant idea is presence. God will always be there for his people in a distant Egypt too. Even if that divine presence is questioned and imperceptible, He will always be whatever his people need him to be in any given moment, in any given place. If they need a deliverer, that's Yahweh. If they need grace and mercy and forgiveness, that's Yahweh. If they need purifying and empowerment, that's Yahweh. If they need rebuke and chastisement, that's Yahweh. If they need guidance, that's Yahweh. So, the name Yahweh, which means the God who is, and the name I am, can mean a couple different things. God can use them a few different ways depending on context. One more note. In the New Testament, we've got Jesus using these two words, I am, a number of times. Not just what we saw at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Read through the Gospel of John sometime, and you'll see a number of what are called the I am statements in the Gospel of John. One of, or two of which, so clearly relate back to Exodus 3 that the religious leaders take up stones to kill Jesus because they know that when Jesus uses those words, he is saying, I am God, I am Yahweh. That is me that Moses met back in Exodus chapter 3. So, now, on to Genesis 22. Let's see how Yahweh's name is used with another word. We'll read some verses in Genesis 2 in a minute. Let me give you some background to the story and then a little paraphrase of the story itself. Genesis 22 is the story about Abraham and Sarah who in previous chapters were promised by God that they would have a child of their own. Now, part of the background is Abraham and Sarah are over 60 years of age when they get this promise. So they wait. One year, two years, Three years, five years, ten years. Over 20 years they wait. No child of their own. And they want a child above anything else in the world, not just because most parents want children, but because God has said, I'll make a people out of your son. That's the background. Here's the story. In Genesis 22, God has given them a child. His name is Isaac. In Genesis 22, he's either in his teens, this is Isaac, or his 20s. He's not a little boy. That's the point. In other words, he can whip in his dad in wrestling if he wants to. God, oddly enough, and it's very odd, very shocking for an Israelite ear and for ours, God commands Abraham to offer his son up as a sacrifice. That is, to take a knife, to kill his son, to let the blood drain as if he were a lamb or an animal and then to burn his body on an altar. We actually see in Genesis 22 why God did this. In the very first verse, we are told that God wanted to test Abraham. So what this probably means is that God wanted to see, or maybe wanted Abraham to see for himself, because God probably knew, who was more important to Abraham, whether it was God himself or Abraham's son Isaac. So this is not about Isaac. In other words, God didn't want to kill Isaac because God didn't like Isaac. This starts out being about Abraham. And as you read through Genesis 22, we'll only read a couple verses here and there. On your own, if you read through all of Genesis 22 later today, the story starts out being about Abraham. It ends up being all about God. So jump to the end of the story. Abraham passes the test. He takes knife in hand. He's about to kill his son. God intervenes and has a lamb right there that can be sacrificed. Now, after this point, after Genesis 22, God never commands another parent to offer a son or a daughter as a sacrifice. In fact, he commands the very opposite through Moses a few years later and says Israelites are never to do this. And we know again in this story that God had a substitute there waiting and ready. But still, that's a shocking story that God commands a parent, even if it's a one-time occurrence in the whole history of the world. Why would God do something so shocking to an Israelite ear and to ours? There's got to be some lessons there in this unique one-time occurrence. And indeed, there are. There were for Israelites. There are for us this day, this hour, in this room. So let's look at a few of them. There are maybe six or seven parallels to Christ in the New Testament in this chapter. I'm going to point out three. First, there is the uniqueness of the son in Genesis 22. Look at verse 2. God says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, look at that verse. Look at it down on the Bible in your lap. Look at it on the center screen. Do you see all those words that God is using to describe Isaac? God could have just said, take your son and go to the land of Moriah. What does God say? He says three different times. Take your son, then there's a comma. So number two, your only son Isaac, then there's a comma. Number three, Whom you love. So quick little tip, technique here in studying and reading the Bible. When an author or God Himself uses extra words, pay attention to it. Usually it's there for emphasis. And in fact, in this chapter, two more times, we read this expression, your son, comma, your only son. You'll see it in verse 12 and verse 16. Interestingly or maybe not interestingly, maybe we should expect this in God's plan of revelation. There's a counterpart to this in the New Testament. There is someone called an only son, repeatedly, in the New Testament. That son is sacrificed by his father, and in this case, in the New Testament, the son has to really die. There's no stopping the death. And you all know who I'm talking about. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Uh, we read most of this in the writings of John. Let me give you two examples. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of thee, here are our two words. An Israelite or a disciple of Jesus would have thought right back to Genesis 22. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, or the beginning of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his Only son. So first point to note, uniqueness of the son. Second point, God provides the offering, not man. So let me read verse 8, and then verse 14. Abraham said, God will provide, this is the Hebrew verb, -eh," for himself, the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. then later in verse 14, same verb. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And again, provide is the Hebrew yirah So here's what's kind of interesting about verse 8. In verse 8, when Abraham says that, his son Isaac has asked him a question. They've been traveling for two days, actually two and a half days. Isaac knows that they're headed for a sacrifice, a burnt offering. So Isaac looks around, and he sees the wood that they need to burn the animal when the animal's dead. Isaac sees either equipment for fire or actually live coals themselves carried in clay pots. So he sees wood, he sees fire, there's no animal anywhere. And again, they're two and a half days out from home, so this is not like a mile down the road, oh, we forgot it, we can go back and get the lamb. So he asks his father, and this is what his father Abraham says without knowing what God will do. Abraham says God will provide for himself the lamb, for the burnt offering. This Hebrew verb, if you use the J, it's jira, the Jehovah Jira part. It's a pretty interesting word. It literally means to see. So literally, this is the Lord will see, but it's used in an, in, an emphatic way. And we do that in English too. So we'll sometimes say, uh, you've got a need or a problem. Uh, I've got a guy who can fix it. He'll see to it. He'll see to it doesn't mean he'll visibly look at it, right? It means he'll take it to the forefront of his mind that'll overflow into his actions and he will take care of it. He will resolve it. He will fix it. That guy will be a a form of a savior or a deliverer for you and your problem. So that's the idea here. Now, here's the key, I think, to this verse. I don't think the key is in the verb provide. I think it's in that little phrase for himself. That is a key phrase in this verse. So here's how Christians often take this verse. Christians will say, uh, You you need a job? Need some money? Need some income? Yahweh Yireh, or if you use the J, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Need a car? The Lord will provide. Need a husband, wife, children? The Lord will provide. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about those things. Of course he does. But that's not the primary meaning of the Lord will provide. The primary meaning is that God will provide for his own glory, his own name. You see, Abraham could have said, I think God is behind what he says here. Abraham could have said something like this. The Lord will provide for you, Isaac, a substitute. Or the Lord will provide for me, because I don't want to lose you. Or the Lord will provide for us. And he doesn't say any of those things. He says the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. We can't do it. God can. And God's ultimate goal is his own glory. Now we derive great joy out of God being concerned with his own glory. So that is not divorced from our physical or emotional or spiritual needs. It's very much in alignment with that. I'm simply saying the primary meaning of the Lord provides is not for cash in your wallet or your purse or your bank account. So, number three. Here's the third thing we'll see that is interesting and unique about Genesis 22. The offering, which is a lamb, not Isaac, results in victory over an enemy's gate. So let me read verse 17 for you. God says to Abraham, your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. So as a result of Abraham's faith, what was his faith? God will provide for himself an offering. Abraham's not going to have to work for it. As a result of Abraham's faith, and more to the point of God providing this sacrifice, we read in Genesis 22 that two things will happen. Abraham will have his son continue in his life, obviously, and his son will become a great people, as many as the stars in the heaven. That we can get. That means a lot of people. The second thing is the one I just read, and that's a little more odd to our ears. That his descendants, this people of God, will possess the gate of their enemies. In fact, it sounds like, we know it doesn't mean this, but it almost sounds like, if we're to take it literally, the Israelites get together, they find out where the city of their enemy is, they march there, they attack it, but all they care about is the gate, right? So they take the gate off the hinges, they got 50 men carrying it on their back, and all they want is that wood and metal and they haul it back to Jerusalem. We know that it doesn't mean that. So to find out what it does mean, I've got to give you a little sidebar, one more sidebar if you can hang with me, into what a gate symbolized in ancient Israel. So let's start by looking at a picture. This is the gate at Megiddo, and it's called a double gate. And you can see why. The first gate is at the lower left part of the picture. So imagine an attacking force Uh, and they try to get in through the gate. Let's say they make it through that first gate. Maybe maybe they've sustained a fourth, a third of their forces that have been killed or injured, but they make it through that first gate. What have they gained access into? The city? No. (laughs) In fact, All that they've gained access into is a killing field, basically, because we've got all these towers, flat roofs, hundreds of defenders on top of the towers, raining down arrows and rocks on top of them. And they still got the second gate, which is uphill and a stronger gate, yet to go. So part of the point here is Israelites and other people groups fortified the gate of the city. What else happened at the gate? They didn't put two or three guards there. They put a whole garrison or company of soldiers there. Could be one or two hundred that were stationed at the gate. What else happened there? Well, how does news travel in the ancient world? TV and cell phones? I think not. By foot. People that travel. So if you wanted news, you'd hang out at the inside of that second gate. Uh, How about a merchant? You're coming into a city with animals that have goods on their backs. You'd actually stop inside the second gate, take a right or left, set up shop under the cool shade of one of these city walls, Politicians hung out here, religious leaders hung out here, people hung out there just to gossip. This was the center of town. It was a very busy, active, hustle-and-bustle place, sometimes even chaotic. The point being, the gate symbolized power, very active power of a city. And when it's used like this, it means that their descendants will have victory over their enemies. So, just like we saw with only son, what did we see? Wow, there's a New Testament counterpart. And only one. There's a New Testament counterpart here. Let me read it for you. It's in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says to his disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's only one other place in the Bible, this is it right here, where we read about God's people having victory over the gate of their enemies because of an offering that God makes. In the New Testament, the Lamb of God, Christ. In Genesis, a real lamb in place of Isaac. So here's how I've heard Matthew 16, 18 used before, and I think it's incorrect. I've heard this, maybe you have too. Oh, gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Gates, what do we use gates for? To defend. Gates are not weapons. They're tools of defense, not offense. So Satan and his demons and evil in this world, all all of that is cowering behind a gate. Not active, not warfaring, cowering. And all the church has to do is do what it normally does. I think that's totally incorrect because of what a gate symbolized. It symbolized power. Rather, it's the opposite. I think Jesus is saying the gate of hell is very active and alive and very much on the offense. But, and it's a great, adversative, B-U-T, but, but it will not prevail. In fact, the church will have victory over the powers of Satan. Why? Because we, the church, are that skilled? No, because Christ has already won the victory at the cross and through his resurrection. Amen? So, Yahweh will provide means God provides a substitutionary sacrifice. He does it for himself. There's a New Testament counterpart. One result of this offering is God's people, both in the Old Testament and more so with the church, have victory over the gate of their enemies. In fact, what Israel never really saw fulfilled We will see fulfilled, and it actually is reality now. We just await the final battle and the final culmination. So, pray with me and let's thank God for these truths. Father, we thank you for your name, Yahweh. We thank you for this variation of your name that you gave Moses that we still read that Jesus used I am, we thank you for all the verses that talk about how your presence with us, individually and corporately, casts out fear and anxiety. It brings victory over sin, it brings peace and comfort and joy. All this is wrapped up in your name, so help us to honor your name. And to honor your name when we speak it, whether it is Yahweh or Jesus. Father, as we were reminded of earlier in the service, we ask for Cody and Carrie, for Nellie and Julian and Blaze and for the Campbell family that you would help them to take the name of Yahweh, the name of Jesus, the name of Yahweh Yireh, the Lord provides, to a land far away from here, a land that is fairly cold and hard to the name of Jesus. Help us to pray them there through this fall, to pray even little things like visas for a little blaze and to rejoice when they are there. God, prepare hearts in North Africa, prepare other people to go and follow in the footsteps of the Campbells and Garrets years and decades down the road. May the name of Jesus be glorified in our lives, in our church, and in this world. Amen.